0: Welcome to the British American Football Coaches Association podcast,
1: a resource designed to support both British football coaches and coaches from around the world. This podcast features special guests discussing techniques, scheme, philosophies and culture for the sport of American football to help develop and grow the game worldwide. Now here's your host, Adam Lillis.
0: Hello and welcome to the BAFCA Coaching Podcast. We will be joined shortly by a big friend of the BAFCA community, Coach Rich Wursell who is currently working at the University of Akron as the Director of Research and Analytics. Uh, coach Wursell is a former coach of the British Leagues who understands the challenges and opportunities available to British coaches and we are delighted to have him on the show. So without any further ado, here is Coach Rich worsell <music> Hello and welcome to the BAFCA Coaching Podcast with me, your host, Adam Lillis. I am joined today by a familiar face in the BAFCA community, currently the D- uh, Director of Research, uh, Football Research and Analytics at the University of Akron, Coach Rich Wursell. Coach, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? I'm very good. How's things over
1: at Akron treating you? Th- things are good. We're uh, gearing up on Friday to uh, start our spring practice. Um, so we, we pushed it back a few weeks. We had a couple of coaches take other jobs, so we pushed things back. But we're, uh, we're gearing up. It's, it's, it's going positively right now. Excellent. So how's
0: your role as a research and analytics fitting in with the, uh, the spring ball?
1: Well, it's, I'm actually getting pretty busy. Um, so essentially what you're trying to do is match up all the situations that you run plays in with an approximation of how many plays you run during the season. And then keeping track of areas that you're trying to improve in versus what you're doing in practice and whether you're doing better in those situations. So it's a lot of number crunching basically every day for the next uh, six weeks. Sure. And that's across the entire
0: football program, not just offense or defense, presumably.
1: Yeah, I work uh, on all three phases. obviously. Number crunching for special teams is a little different, but uh, offensively and defensively, yeah, we try and set some mutual goals if we can.
0: Excellent. So before we dive into our topic today, uh, just in case anyone here in the UK isn't aware of who you are and your background, why don't you give us uh, a run-through of how you started in football, where your journey has taken you, and how you've ended up at Akron today?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it it started back in East Grinstead in, like, 1990, 1991. I was uh, playing uh, youth football back in the day, and our team folded. And uh, we didn't have a team close by, so I started my own, the uh, East Grinstead Knights. We hired a coach for the first year, and uh, he went back to playing in the senior league after our first season. So I was 16 years old, and, and... figured I'd be the coach and enjoyed that. Um, we played a couple more years and I went on to uni at avarist with where I, uh, I played there and then became the offensive coordinator and head coach. There was fortunate to be a coach on the, uh, great Britain Bulldogs. Uh, Tony Athersmith was my head coach there. And we did a nice tour of America, which opened up my eyes that something I really wanted to pursue was to become a, a college coach. Um, uh, after the tour came back, became the head coach of the Sussex Thunder. It was our first year back. Um, so we, we came back and were rebuilt, rebuilding things. Um, did that, interned in NFL Europe around the same time. And then uh, after a year with the Thunder, uh, got a graduate assistant job at Lakeland College in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. So I was out there coaching uh, wide receivers. We were fortunate to be 15-5 and five those two years. And I coached uh, the uh, conference offensive player of the year in Jeff Taft, um, and we uh, won the first conference championship in a decade there, my second year. Um, that then became an opportunity to get a job at Milliken University, uh, so that's in Decatur, Illinois. So I moved down south, relative to uh, Wisconsin at least, uh, where I did three years there as the uh, start off as a receiver coach. My last year was quarterbacks and receivers and. And the pass game coordinator, I did three years doing that. And then got my first opportunity to become a play caller and moved across the state to Jacksonville, Illinois, where I became the offensive coordinator at Illinois College. Uh, did three years there, met Laura, uh, my now wife. Um, she was working for the school, but we met there. And then together we moved to uh, Southern California, where I was the uh, associate head coach and offensive coordinator for the University of Laverne a uh, football program that had won four games in four years prior to me arriving. And, uh, uh, we went, uh, undefeated in conference play and won our first conference championship in, uh, 20 years. In My time there, uh, we broke, uh, I believe 11 school records. We broke 17 school records, Illinois college. So set 28 school records as an offensive coordinator. And then, uh, after my, you know, was spending a lot of time there and uh, this opportunity opened to come here and do something very different. Uh, so I'm the director of football research and analytics at Akron, and it's very unusual for guys to jump from Division Three to Division One FBS football. And, uh, and so it's, it's really been a growing uh, role here. I, I don't have a job description, um, so I'm involved with a lot of areas but the area I'm I'm working on most heavily right now is like statistical trends that relate to us being able to improve in football. Um, So that, that, that's pretty varied, but it's just any little thing you can look at and educate yourself on. uh, We try and do, we will study other teams, um, whoever the best teams are in college and the NFL, um, you know, and so we just try and have a good understanding of, things that happen in the course of a game that you can educate yourself on that you can be better at. Um, and sometimes those things don't happen very often, but you've got to be prepared for them. So that's kind of where I'm at now. So I, I'm in a really enviable situation, I think, for a lot of people, that I sit down all day and I can watch film of about any team in the country, um, just dive in and, and spend the day watching them and see what I can learn. And, and I'm really fortunate to be able to do that. I also uh, – obviously, I coach his video team. Um, give a shout-out to my boy, Ethan, who uh, organizes that every day. And then uh, our creative uh, media team as well. Uh, give Lou Williams and uh, Nick Crillin a shout-out for the outstanding work that they do with their creative media and, and graphics on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. Absolutely. And uh,
0: first of all, congratulations on your, on your appointment at Akron. I really want to dive into... That area and the analytics part in, in respect to our topic today. But before we do that, you've just given us a sort of whirlwind tour of your career over the past however many years. And you have coached at obviously a lot of various levels in the in the UK and then various levels at college. Is there anything that you could point to that are consistent, you know, behaviours or consistent situations regardless of level? And anything that you think are, you know, things that could make... Because obviously you went from going to Laverne that wasn't necessarily a very successful football programme and turned them into uh, an offensive powerhouse in some some sense. Were there things that you could do, that you did there, that you could do at any level, including the UK, that would just be quick wins, uh, considering our limited resources over here?
1: You know, I, I think... It's, it's interesting. Up-base run play at Laverne was, was stretch zone. And really, the way we ran it a lot of the time was very similar to the way we ran it at the Sussex Thunder to the way I ran it at Aberystwyth uh, my last year. Um, I think trying to be organized is important. I think recognizing the skill set of your team and being able to change... And adapt to their skills year to year. To me, growing up and coaching in Britball made me a successful coach in the US because I couldn't have just a quote-unquote system and just do the same thing every year. So, like, I'll give you an example. At Illinois College as the offensive coordinator, we were ranked top 10 in the country throwing the football most years. We, we averaged... 300 yards passing or so a game had an all-american receiver led the league and led the country in receptions um and then when i got to laverne i realized we weren't as good in that area but we could get really good running backs so we then became a primarily a running team and the rpo stuff and we became one of the top running teams in the country and and matt biggers was the fourth leading rusher in the entire ncaa um and was an all-american for us and that really goes to my You know, the British background of, like, coaching, you know, what was the college league is now Bucks And you don't know what you're going to have until two weeks before your first game. Like, somebody may turn up who's an unbelievable talent at running the football, and you may not have a QB. Or if you do have a QB, you may not have anyone that can play receiver. So that flexibility and ability to adapt comes directly from the British game. So I think it's that's kind of how I've always approached it. Um, now being at the division one level and having a lot of people involved, it's really about, uh, trying to define people's roles, um, taking advantage of the things they're the best at and and being as organized and having a clear vision. Um, you know, obviously we're really fortunate to be able to practice, you know, almost daily, um, like during spring ball, we'll go three times a week and have meetings, alternate days. it's you know, compared to British football, you don't get that much face time with people, but with like the addition of huddle and, and those things now, guys can get online and watch films. So, um, I think everything always goes back to the British game for me. It just that's where I grew up, that's my uh, my home place. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I bring everything back. I mean, that's
0: that's great advice, and I think that's a lot of a lot of established coaches will often. Reiterate the same messages you've just said, and one of the dangers of coaching over in, in Britain is, as you well know, trying to do too much with the limited time and not doing something that fits your players. So it's definitely a, a message to keep reiterating. Mm. Um, just moving on, at Laverne, you were offensive coordinator and you were at other universities as well, and you were at Laverne for a long time, Division 3 level. uh very heavy hand in what the offense is running, obviously. And Now you've made this jump to Division One in a, a research and analytics role. I mean, you touched on this a little bit already. What has that change been like for you as a, as a coach to go from that person who's very much in charge of a, a whole offensive unit to someone who's more um, perhaps behind the scenes working with data and analytics and, and improving the team uh, from a different angle?
1: yeah it's it, it's been really good um, and and here's why if you approached it the same way as you know being the offensive coordinator then I think you're going to miss out what I've been able to do is really take like a sabbatical approach and all the things I've wanted to study I've, in my career I've been able to so I'm involved with our offense uh, you know, which are you know head coach and Tommy Zagorski our offensive coordinator obviously have you know final say in um, I'm involved in setting goals and how we can improve in those areas and researching areas um, I'm also involved with the same thing with our defense and, and before at Laverne and Illinois College I really wouldn't care too much like that's you know the defensive coordinator's job is to get the defense going I can help them out if they have questions, but most of the time you're just worried about your side of the ball. Whereas here I, I'm looking at all three phases as if very much I was the head coach. Um, and then on top of that, you're looking at game scenarios, which really happen, you know, majority happen like the last four minutes of each half. Um, you know, how you can handle those as a team and the best decisions you can make for your team. Um, so it's it's a little different. And uh, I think sometimes as an offensive coordinator, you're very wrapped up in um, trying to score. I mean, that's your job is to score points. But there's maybe times where you may not want to score and you may want to try and um, control the clock and, and different things like that. Um, the, you need to understand all three phases of the game. So for me now, that's where I'm at is, is how do we win the game, how do we win this situation more than, you know, is the offense playing well? So it's been a little different, but it's been really rewarding that way. Um, and it forced you to, to watch the game in a very different situation, different way.
0: Sure, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing that whatever work you're doing prior to a practice is the coaching staff themselves are getting immediate feedback from, from yourself post practice in terms of what what the targets were, what the data is now saying and where we were good, where we were bad, those type of things.
1: Yeah. And like take this spring for example, which you know, we start Friday. I'm going to keep track of of every snap that we run in an eleven on eleven environment and uh, and give that to our coaches daily like with an updated kind of, you know, we've run this many snaps, you know, the offense is winning here, the defense is winning here, and kind of be able to keep tab through spring. Um, I didn't do that during full camp, um, but I think next, this fall, that would be something I would be doing. Um, but spring ball is just a little different for us because there's no game. You're just, you're entirely focused on your team. So it's, it's a good time of year. Uh, to just go out and, and work on improving yourself, um, you don't have to worry about implementing a game plan or coming up with a, you know, a plan of action of how to beat an opponent. Everything's kind of internalized. So we'll be really uh, keeping track of all the stats that you can really think of during the spring. With the goal that I could compare this spring stats to our in-season stats, and then compare them maybe to our full camp stats, um, and then our in-season stats next year and kind of see if we're growing as a team.
0: Excellent. Well, let's get stuck into the topic of today, um, which you've called the mid-late. And this has come from, I was aware of it because you've got an email distribution list where you're sharing some, uh, some football information and things like that. And we'll share some information at the end of the podcast on how people can perhaps sign up to that, if that's okay with you. Yeah, it's all good. Um, but the middle eight was one of, your, one of your articles that you shared. For the listeners that don't know what you're referring to as the middle eight, it would be great if you could just explain to them what you mean by it and why it's so important in terms of winning and losing football games.
1: Yeah. Um, so essentially, the middle eight is the uh, four minutes before halftime and the four minutes after halftime. So it's the the middle eight minutes of the game. Um, And it's it's really important because uh, research shows us if you're ahead, you know, you win those eight minutes, you have the ability more likely than not to win the game. Um, And often people focus in on like the last two minutes of the game or third down, but it, it really is an opportunity where – and it's the only time it can happen, depending on the coin toss, where one team could have back-to-back possessions um, without an onside kick. So, you know, if you have the opening coin toss and you, uh, you win the coin toss and you defer to take the ball in the second half, then if you got a chance to end the first half with the football and score a touchdown – and stop your opponent scoring and then receive it in the second half and score again, then you essentially, you know, you, you could end up with back-to-back possessions if you uh, really kill the clock down. Um, so because of that, I think it's just a, a strategy to kind of understand it can play in and uh, it kind of enables you to take the the long approach and you're really not so concerned about, you know, what well, the score is. You could be down 14 going into the middle of eight and know that you could tie the game up early in the third quarter. If you're ahead seven and you're in that situation, you could, you know that's coming up. You could go up 21 and that game is effectively over. Um, if, I think you just got to understand the strategies and ways that that thing could play out. And it, and it varies, like I said, if you have the ball in the second half or if you don't.
0: So, I mean, this is a – and I found this a really interesting topic. And it's not something I've ever, as a coach, really considered. I just think about let's get into half time like within a score or make sure we're leading by a certain number of points. And I've read your article and it was really interesting based on what you just explained there. But what practically should coaches be considering uh, if they're going to start using this kind of mindset of the middle eight? Is there anything they can be doing? Uh, before the game to plan or what they can do in real time during the game to kind of plan to take advantage of those four minutes either side and a half
1: yeah I, I think firstly i mean let's start at the beginning when i send the email out i got emails back from a bunch of coaches saying they always when they win the toss elect to take the ball uh some of them because they want to establish their offense early some of them uh you know, want to set the precedent that they're going to score first and put more, you know, perceived pressure on your opponent. I think the first thing you want to consider is if you win the toss, deferring to the second half. Um, if you defer, and you know you're going to receive it in the second half, um, you know, if your opponent, I mean, it almost happened in the NFL this year. They they might elect to kick off, and you might end up with the ball at the beginning of both halves, uh, which would be you know, if you've ever played Madden football, that becomes pretty advantageous to, to get the ball at the beginning of both halves. Yeah. Um, but if not, you know, if, if you're going to receive it the second half and your opponent takes it at the beginning of the game, then as you're getting down into that four-minute run, you know, it really comes down to if you have the football, you would ideally like to run the clock down and score where there's little time left in the clock. In the first half. If you do not have the ball back, you're trying to get it back and and go down and score again. What you don't want to do is like four minutes left, you know, go down and score in 30 seconds, and now you're giving your opponent a chance to score. Um, You really want to try and be in a position where you can play a little bit of possession football, take your time, get the clock running down, shorten the half down, and, and play the odds that you're going to score or your opponent may not have time enough to score Um, in an ideal world, knowing that then right after the halftime, you're going to get the ball back immediately right away.
0: So, And and is this something that you, I don't know if this has happened over in the States where you've uh, used this information, but is this something we can perhaps practice at practice as a mindset of Cause everyone's heard of like the two minute drills and the, the four minute drills as a kind of, you know, running down the clock or uh, hurry up offense to try and score in a two minutes. But it's a something, a middle eight concept we can use as a, a practice tool to help us become yeah. more efficient.
1: Yeah. I think you could do a, a part of practice where you just play the, the middle eight minutes out. I mean, you could, I mean, obviously, you, there's a lot of scenarios you, you can be in, but, um, you know, like the Super Bowl, the example I gave to, to the people who subscribed to my email was the Chiefs won the middle eight, 14-zip. And that was really the turning point in the Super Bowl, um, you know, for them. I, I think, you know, really the, what you're trying to do in the four-minute situation is get it into a two-minute situation. And in a two minute offense, you're really trying to get the clock running. Like your first play, you know, really, I would think most of the time it should just be a run play to get the clock running. Either kill an opponent's timeout or get the ball or the clock running. So that then as you run your next few plays, at worst, the opponent's going to get about a minute on the clock left. But when you pick up a first down, then you can get the clock down to a point that you're either going to score with very few seconds left on the clock meaning your opponent can only potentially run like a you know some sort of gadget play like the Dolphins did a few years ago or if they can get a great kick return get a Hail Mary um, I mean so it's really you're in the four minute situation to try and get it into two minute and two minute you want to try and get the clock run down so that you can score your ideal situation is to score with you know at some point, it doesn't become about the clock, it becomes about how many plays you can run. And if a play is five to six seconds of clock time, if you can get it down to, say, 20 seconds, you know your opponent can run three, maybe four plays. So that's where you're kind of playing math is not against the clock, but how many plays they can run. So my mindset is get the clock running, get the four minute into a two minute, get the two minute into a situation where you're either going to score or not score, but your opponent really doesn't have the opportunity to, and then you're going to get the ball back right after that and, and continue playing. Um, so in practice, I mean, it, it it can be difficult to just pick an arbitrary time, but um, I would set up the whole situation. Like, like, you know, for the chiefs, um, you know, chiefs were trailing 24, 21, I believe. Um, I think in the championship game, maybe, um, uh, and Patrick Mahomes drove and through a touchdown and came out through another touchdown in the uh, beginning of the next quarter. I mean, give him a, a real-life NFL situation. Um, when you're watching games on TV, take note when he gets to that spot. Like, you know who, who won the coin toss. And then you can try and play that out in practice. And, and I know in Britball, more often than like not, you get one practice a you know, week. But you think about, you know, when you're scrimmaging – you know, on your weekly basis in preseason, just set some up as like some situations you're going to do. I mean, everyone enjoys the two minute drill, um, but you know, try doing this, do a, do a four minute deal.
0: Absolutely. And I think there's a, sometimes the danger that we get in is we just spot the ball and we run plays for 15 minutes. Like there's no progression, there's no down and distance, no situation. So, all of those elements. Whether it's we're talking about middleweight or third downs or whatever it may be, we absolutely need those, especially with our limited time, to kind of reflect game day situations as opposed to just running a bunch of plays just for the sake of running plays.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, and it's some players. When you're like, when I was at Sussex, you know, we had some really veteran players on the team that first year. Um, you know, from from the quarterbacks, um, I know uh, Will had played uh, college football in, in Buaffle. Um, I had Warren Smart, who was, was a quarterback, and he had a lot of experience in college and at senior league. And then Paul Robinson had coached and played. And so I think those, the, those three QBs would have all really thrived in the different scenarios of things. If I had a rookie QB that was still learning the system, then maybe you're a little more naive with him and you're just trying to talk about it as a coaching staff. And, and that's where those situations help you as well is you end up in situations that you as a coaching staff can kind of talk about what you're trying to do there. And if you don't practice those, then you know the first time it comes up in the game, you're trying to figure out what to do and you've got 25 seconds. You, you may not make the best decision. Whereas if you can practice it, even if you do it a couple of times, then at least you, everyone kind of knows what you're trying to do. And it's not – doesn't feel weird. Like, you know, you're in a two-minute drill and you call a run play on first down and everyone's looking at you like, we need to hurry up. Well, no, we want to kill some clock here so that we're minimizing how many snaps our opponent could run, you know, if we don't score. Um so I think those sort of things of explaining to people based on the relative experience of your team is really important. Sure. And just the last
0: question on the middle eight, let's take a, an example that's perhaps a positive one for the offense. So you're perhaps trailing by less than a score. You use the final four minutes of the half. Uh, you run down the clock. You score a touchdown, a go-ahead touchdown. You restrict the opponent from scoring, you go into half time, you come out with the ball. Is there a different approach to beginning the second half in order to extend your lead or do you just go back to, or would you suggest just going back to your regular offensive style and how
1: you would start a game? Or is there something different that you would think about? because you? No, playing? I think if you've scored and taken the lead and now you have the ball again, then you're really just trying to score. I mean, it's just you're running your regular basic offensive philosophy. Um, I think at that point then you've kind of started the game off again. You've just taken the four-quarter game and made it two quarters, and you got a chance to start off with a 10-point lead or whatever. Um, so I, I think that's kind of your, your whole um, philosophy of just playing base offense at that point. Um, I think it's just understanding like if you can get back-to-back possessions in that area you have a chance to swing a game by 14 points and that's, that's significant.
0: Sure, and I guess, the, I guess the critical part that I'm getting from all of this is uh, the, the underlying data is there that supports it, but the critical part is you as a coach knowing it, your staff knows it, and all your players know it, because that's a huge momentum swing in your mindset of going into the half with a score, knowing you're getting the ball back, and rather than Rather than having to explain it all, they just already know it and they feel you know, they're in a real strong position.
1: Yeah, I mean, over the last five years at Division 1, uh, teams that win the middleweight win 74% of the time. So, I mean, that's a strong statistic right there. And, and you're right. Like, If everyone on the coaching staff knows what your philosophy is and your players understand it, then, I mean, that's just one example of one situation you could be in, um, you know. And conversely, if you're on the other side and you're, you're not getting the ball, um, like, let's say, you know, you play the other way that your opponent won the toss. They're going to receive it in the second half. Uh, and, and you have the ball now. The last thing you want to do is is have them score and then know that they have the ball again. Like, well, sure. you, you know, what you really want to be able to do is like minimize their chances of scoring. Now, if you're just scoring a will, then, then it's a little different, but you want to try and go down and score. And then the conversation at halftime is, Hey, we, we need to prevent this opponent from scoring. This drive is critical, you know, to, to us winning the football game. If you know we scored right before half, we can get a stop here and get the ball back. Then we can flip this thing and we'll probably go on and win the football game. Sure.
0: Absolutely. Um, and I know you're busy, and you, you'll need to get on with your with your role there at, at Akron, but just one final question, just specifically to your role as you know research and analytics, as you know, with the limited time we have over here in the u k or even in Europe, um, film and you know the ability to really dive into the data and scout is extremely limited and not to the same extent of, uh, you know, a division one college program, but is there anything you would suggest that the average uh, British football team can do in respect to using data and analytics to help them improve their program? Or is it a case that actually you do just need a lot more resource and a lot more time?
1: No, I think there's, there's a lot of different things you can do that will add benefit to you improving. I think a part of it is using stats to kind of understand what your opponents are trying to do. Um, I remember the first game I ever broke down uh, was Birmingham Lions against Warwick Wolves somewhere around 2002, 2003. And uh, we'd played both those teams twice the year before. I didn't have a great handle on their tendencies. I knew the outline of what they did, but then I found with Birmingham, every time they motioned, they threw the ball. Um, And so that, that was a, uh, you know, an issue for them that they would uh, they would get out and and do that. So like that told me something. So when we played them next year, you know, it was one of our deals like, Hey, anytime they motion, we're going to, be ready to to defend the pass. And that kind of held true. Um, And then, you know, internally, I think you can use the uh, stats to kind of see how you're doing in practice and how you're doing in games. So uh, I'll give you like an example from Laverne. Um, We would track our quarterback's completion percentage during different parts of practice. And when we had those stats, we were able to compare them to the game and get an idea of relative to the game, we would see what their percentage was uh, in practice. So if in a game there was 60% in practice, there may be 70%, like 10% higher. Um, And then what we could do then is if in practice we were completing 50%, we knew in a game we would be below that. It kind of helped us understand what we were going to see in a game from our guys. The other thing you can do um, is – use the same script of plays multiple weeks, not every week in a row, but use a script you know, on a, the first Sunday of the month and use it on the third and track and see if you fix the mistakes between them. And I think it's kind of like science experiments. If you, if you use the same script in the same offense versus the same defense, you can absolutely see, did you clean up the errors that you made the first time through and I think where analytics can help you there is is being able to track those mistakes and identify areas that you're deficient at. Um, so I think if, if I was back in coaching Brit ball right now, I would do some basic breakdown of my opponents wherever I could get film. I would give opponents my film if they would give me theirs because um, I think even if they look at it, like I think you can get a lot out of seeing someone else's film. And then I would try and track as much from practice uh, as you possibly can because football is one of those sports where you practice more than you play so being able to track um, your completion percentage or you know if a receiver's had ten balls thrown at him and he's dropped five you know what are the routes that he's dropping um, you know maybe that guy shouldn't be the guy that's the go-to receiver on third down uh, you just try and get an idea like that of as many little things and and really the way I use. Analytics, which I think a lot of people get scared of, is you're trying to prove hunches, right? So if you feel like, man, we're really good at throwing deep balls, then make a cut up of all your deep balls and work out a percentage and try and find something to compare it to and figure out are we really good or are we really bad at it. And I just think we're good because we complete them a couple of times every practice. Um, So I think all of those things play into it. you know, like you can also use analytics to help you with individual players, like you know, like let's take your opposing punter, for example. You can time how long from snap to kick, like from you know, snapping the ball, him catching it and him kicking it. And if you know it's in a certain range, you're more likely to be able to get there and block it than if it's much quicker. So that tells you whether you should try and block or do hold up that week. Then if your time is hang time and how far he kicks it, you'll know how far down the field the coverage can get um, and whereabouts he's kicking it. So you can kind of educate your punt returner instead of playing a guessing game. you would be like, hey, this guy kicks it 30 yards from the line of scrimmage. So, you know, we're going to have a chart on the sideline, and every time you're on the field, we're going to tell you what yard line you need to put your feet on, and that's roughly where he's been kicking it. and then you can factor in wind, without wind, all those things. So, I mean, it can help you in a lot of areas. The more people you have, the better. Um, but just starting off real simple, I think, without putting in a lot of data points, can become pretty useful useful for you on a daily basis. Coach, thank you. That was
0: fantastic information. I think there's a lot of coaches back home can get out of this. Um, before you go... Uh, I like to give people the opportunity to share their social media handles, but also I think for you in particular, share how people can get a hold of your your email distribution list um, that you've started to start to share.
1: Yeah, um, you know I've I've sent out a couple of emails from it. Uh, so if you uh, go on my Twitter, which is at Coach Underscore Worsall, Worsell, W O R S E L L, and just DM me then I will add you to my list. Uh, You can also follow uh, Akron Zips Football on Twitter, um, which is, uh, let me remember what the year is, at Zips FB. Uh, We're doing a competition right now. If people want to enter, um, $150 a ticket, give this a plug, and uh, you get to travel with the team uh, from Akron. Uh, We'll fly you on our team private uh, plane to Clemson, be on the sideline. we play Clemson this year, uh, which will be a pretty cool deal. So, um, yeah, give that thing a little plug as well. So, um, But, yeah, if you want to go on my analytics email list, drop me an email or send me a, a DM on Twitter and I'll, I'll add you and you can get interesting tips on uh, analytics every couple of weeks.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Coach. I'll let you get on. Uh, best of luck for the season ahead and to Akron Zips in general. And hopefully we'll see you sometime in the UK soon.
1: Heck yeah. All right, Adam. Thanks so much. Go Zips.
0: Another thank you to Coach Wurzel and uh, best of luck to the Akron Zips for this upcoming season. If you haven't already, make sure you're able to attend the BAFCA convention in July. It's always a great event. Keep an eye out for future Level 1 and Level 2 coaching courses and get yourself booked on those if required. As usual, contact me at Coach Lillis, L-I-L-L-I-S, or through Facebook to recommend future guests or to put yourself forward as a guest yourself. Uh, tune in next week for another Backer Coaching Podcast episode.